HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Greenhorns Radio. This is Severin. I'm very happy to be with you once again after a long, cold, wintry break. Today we are joining with Josh Morgenthau of Morgenthau. Well, it's actually called Fishtail Farms, and it's in Fishtail, New York. Hey, Josh, are you there? Hi, Severin. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, so exciting. I am very thrilled, and um, we just bumped into each other at the NOFA New York conference. Which was wonderful. Yeah. Did you have a nice time at the conference, Josh? Yeah, it was good. Um, it's always uh, interesting. There's a range of people there, so some of the workshops are, you know, geared towards home gardeners, and you know, some of them are geared more towards uh, commercial farmers. But um, there was a lot of useful stuff going on. Useful stuff is what's going on. Um, Josh is farming in Fishkill, New York. Maybe you could tell uh, our regular listeners your general introductory spiel about your farm and what your practices are and how it's evolving, that farm project there. Sure. Um, so the farm is it's Fishkill Farms. It's um, uh, about 300 acres, um, and we farm about 150 acres. Um, it was... Um, started by my grandfather in 1913, um, and it was originally over a thousand acres, but um, over time it, you know, struggled like a lot of um, local farms and, and uh, you know, it was actually divided between my father and his siblings, and um, you know, now we're down to uh, 300 acres. We grow apples, um, peaches. Pears, nectarines, other fruits. We've recently added uh, vegetables and livestock. So you're walking into a farm operation that was established two generations ago and was managed um, before you got there under a different set of objectives. What were you bringing when you brought when you came walking into an existing farm operation? And how well, have you had to? How have you kind of adapted and 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 changed the operations yeah. focus? I mean, it's funny. I didn't <laughs> I didn't bring much to the table other than the um, you know um, just an urge to keep the farm alive. Um, and um, you know, I also um, you know, the environment and uh, 
and not wanting, you know, to eat foods with pesticides or to, you know, contribute to the amount of pesticides going on food has always been important to me. So that was sort of a secondary goal. But the um, the real, you know, original thing was just um, to try to keep the farm going. It had been... Um, you know, my, my grandfather started it. He was sort of a gentleman farmer. He didn't, he wasn't, you know, actually pruning the trees. He had a, a farm manager, and um, the farm was, you know, something that for him was not, um, he wasn't farming out of economic necessity. Um, it was just something he, he wanted to do. But over time, as the farm is, um, you know, pieces have been sold off, and as it struggled, it, it's become clear that it, you know, it needs to, make ends meet to keep going. And so, um, you know, I didn't actually have agricultural training from school. I was, um, you know, majored in something totally different. And, um, but I moved to the farm after school because I, go ahead. What did you major in? Um, painting and, uh, (laughs) and fine art. And I still, you know, have this illusion that I'm going to, paint uh, during the winter. I've actually have been able to do a little painting this winter, but a lot of your <laughs> goals of doing other things, as soon as you get really involved in farming, you just, you focus, and that everything seems to, to uh, everything else fades into the background. Um, but, um, you know, I basically came at it a couple years ago, and it, it had been... Um, We'd been leasing it out. My father had leased the farm out to other growers because our manager had retired, and um, they weren't really taking care of the orchard. And uh, it was sort of at this crossroads that either it was maybe going to end up like a lot of the other farms in the area and, and uh, you know, grow some houses or, um, or it needed a kind of new model and new energy. And so, I mean, that's like... Came in just with the, the urge to um, to give it a go. So you're giving it kind of a great go, and you're working in partnership with other people, which is um, very characteristic of our um, generation's entrepreneurs. Is you know innovative partnerships. Tell me about your tell me about your rest of your farm team there, including mm-hmm. your lovely Hannah. Well, um, Hannah, my partner. Um, uh, you know, we went to school together, and um, afterwards, when I decided to move up to the farm and and uh, you know do it full time, she came with me, and she's been um, great because you know the, I guess I have to step back and give a little about how we market. We're um, we're mainly a pick your own farm, and um, so there's an on farm market, and then in season, starting with cherries and going through peaches and nectarines um, and then into apples and pears, we, um, we have, you know, a crowd of people that come to the farm mainly on the weekends to pick their own. So she, um, she came in and I, while I was learning how to grow fruit, she was learning how to manage the, um, the personnel side of it, the, the pick-your-own operation and the farm market. And... Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, maybe like a lot of uh, young farmers, when I first started, I was so excited by the idea of growing everything. So we decided that, you know, we also wanted 
a vegetable operation in addition to the fruit, which was, you know, all that the farm had at, at the time a couple of years ago. So I put out, you know, postings on NOFA and um, other sustainable agriculture websites and um, met a bunch of, you know, other farmers and uh, ended up meeting um, a couple who had been farming in Maine, Julia Trunzo and, and Fox June, and they had a, a ton of really good experience growing organic veggies. And um, so they pioneered a vegetable operation, which is, you know, each year over the past couple of years has gone, you know, doubled in, in acreage. So you're charging away with great ambition, learning a lot really fast. And, and, and Hannah, you know, having to learn this customer service side of things, which isn't always the most intuitive part of agriculture, but clearly bringing, bringing the food to the table is only part of the equation. You also have to convince someone to pay for it. Um, exactly. exactly. Maybe you could share a little bit about, you know, what you, you know, walking into that situation, what you could share with others who were, who were um, learning about marketing. Mm-hmm. What, what did you well, do I mean, wrong? I think, um, I <laughs> or what did you do the, right? Uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, nothing. Just what did you do wrong and what did you do right? <laughs> well, I think we did everything wrong before we did anything right. But, um, I mean, at the same time, we were really lucky because despite the changes in management, um, the farm, uh, the apple trees had been, you know, in the ground producing for years, and um, we had a uh, kind of a built-in pick your own following, so that was, you know, really helpful to, you know, come September, October, have a whole slew of people show up to pick apples, even though they may not have known that um, it was now being managed by a bunch of young farmers who wanted to, you know, turn the orchard organic. Um, but um, I think, that, you know, what I've learned is that, um rather than doing what we did, which is try to do everything at once, that it, it makes sense to, to um, build up gradually and to, um, and to pick a few marketing channels. I mean, diversity is good, but it's, I think one of the most important things in farming is that, you know, when you try to do too much and you don't do everything right, um, you lose the efficiency that already, you know, it, it's so hard at a small scale to compete with market prices, but once if you are, you know, have too many um, things going on and you lose even more efficiency, it, it becomes really hard to to make ends meet. And and did you find that your customers were slightly forgiving, but then ultimately not that forgiving of, of any small errors that you made? <laughs> well, you don't. Um, I mean, I don't. I think, you know, I, I don't think we had any huge disasters with our customers. I mean. Um, one interesting thing is that uh, I've been using a material on the apples, and I don't know how many listeners know um, very much about you know, apples, but they're they're really one of the hardest crops to grow organically. And if you don't spray them with something in the Northeast, you you don't get a crop. So it's always you know a, a dilemma of what what to spray them with. But I've been spraying the apples with. Uh, a new material that's organic and it's um, hill and clay, it's just a, a fine white powder, 
and rather than killing, you know, the insects that would be uh, destroying your fruit, you're just camouflaging the fruit, and uh, it acts as a repellent. The problem is, you know, come picking time, the trees are look completely white. It looks like, you know, Christmas. And um, so training the, the, our customers that know we weren't spraying more pesticides, we were actually um, avoiding pesticides and that this white powder is just clay that they can wipe off. And that was the type of thing that, that had some, uh, you know, had some interesting altercations and people getting kind of furious. But ultimately, you know, the people that are not your market um, will just go away and, and, you know, hopefully you what you're doing is going to connect to some group of people and uh, word of mouth will, will spread that to more you know, of your target market, and you'll end up uh, growing, which I, I think has happened. We've seen that a lot. I mean, we definitely uh, had a lot of, you know, pick your own customers that were upset about the price or this or that, and uh, eventually they they just don't come back. And But then the people that really appreciate what you're doing do come back. <laughs> Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, good. The people who appreciate what you're doing will come back, and those who are willing to be educated about kale and clay, which looks crazy, but which is much less toxic, ultimately yeah. are engaging in um, what's called, uh, what's it called? It's called customer education? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Uh, oftentimes, I feel that um, some of that, some of the burden of customer education should be borne by such institutions as Whole Foods. I feel like they could do a really good job um, explaining about growing practices. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I wonder how you're teaching, or how what you know, what the language is they're using. Are you using placards on the farm stand, or are you just explaining like one by one by one to each person mm -hmm. about kale and clay, or like? From a communication standpoint, how do you um, how do you teach that moment? Well, I mean, it's a little bit of everything, I think, and and of course, you know, you can't reach everybody. But one thing that we figured out is is um, you know, when we have pick your own customers coming in, we have to give them uh, a bag and we have to give them a little bit of a rundown of what's in season, what you know, give them a map of the orchard and say what is ready to pick and what isn't. So um, one of the first things that we did that really helped was, um, you know, printed up a map with pretty detailed information on our growing practices on the back. And, um, and that, you know, is a big help. We were able to put one of those maps in every customer's hand. Um, and, you know, not, not all of them read it. And we'd still get calls from people, you know, who were in our orchard calling our farm store and saying, you know, what the heck is this white stuff on the apples? And then I'd have to tell them, well, did you get a map? They'd say yes. And then I'd ask, well, you see the part that says, what's that white stuff on the apples? And then they'd, you know, feel embarrassed and and uh, and they'd eventually read it and, and then be happy. Okay. Um, so that was one thing. And, and I think the web is another thing that, you know, is really um, has a tremendous potential for small farms and for fledgling farms. I mean, we, I think, 
just by having a good website, um, have been able to attract, you know, a huge amount of new customers to the farm. And um, I think, you know, if, if anyone is getting in, involved in a farm and trying to figure out how to market themselves, the, the first thing they should think about is, is um, just investing in a, in a, you know, simple but informative web page. Simple but informative web presence. Yeah. It looks good. And you managed to get the attention of some pretty high-profile um, fruit pickers there. I, I remember the gossip oh, when it traveled up, up the valley. Yeah, I'm, uh, we're still, we still <laughs> don't know how that's going to affect the business. Um, you know, Jill and Hall. Wait, and not everybody might have noticed the farm. paparazzi. What's that? You might have to explain. Not everybody's really um, who listens to this show is so in tune with the paparazzi. So you may need to explain a little bit what we're talking about. Well, I didn't actually see anything, but I was just, um, you know, one one weekend day towards the end of the season, um, you know, this apple season, uh, a bunch of our pick-your-own staff who were, um, you know, largely comprised of you know, high school girls um, were, you know, screaming and, and giggling, and apparently um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and... Taylor Swift had come to the farm on a date, um, and then, you know, thereafter we had paparazzi from different tabloids showing up at the farm asking about it. But the funny thing is that it was at the end of our season, and I haven't seen any real, other than, you know, a lot of inquisitive people, I haven't seen how it's going to affect the farm. But, yeah, I think if you can get celebrities to uh, come to your farm, it, it can't really hurt. <laughs> Well, unless and then of course they'll be um, they'll be so powerfully nourished that they may decide um, they may decide to buy farms themselves and stop being celebrities and, and become farmers, which of course would be the most relevant decision that could be made. Yeah, that would that would be relevant. I somehow don't that's know if my that's hope. Happen anytime soon, but we're we're on our way. We're on our way. Um. So you're going gangbusters. You went straight into all sorts of things. You, you you learned a lot of hard lessons. You had a barn burn down. That was big. Yeah. Um, let's that let's season, talk about last, your barn. Not, not this year, but last season um, was really difficult. Um, it was uh, kind of our, in some ways, our first season really geared up. Um, we were doing vegetables and really pushing, um, yeah you know, pushing our pick-your-own crops, and um, we just gotten a flock of sheep, and that was the first um, season that I was working with Fox and Julia, the our vegetable growers, and um, it was just the, one of the wettest seasons ever. I mean, it was pretty much constant rain from um, May through, you know, August, um, and then, you know, early summer, um, our uh, barn just burnt down, um, and it was an old, huge um, old barn. Part of it was had been on the farm when my grandfather purchased the land in 1913, and part of it you know, was additions that were put on later. And it was, in some ways, it was falling apart already, and we didn't really know what to do with it. 
but um, you know, it, it really doesn't hurt to have a place to store your crafters um, when you're starting out. And um, we still, to this day, don't really know what happened. We were all out in the field and saw, you know, plumes of smoke. And uh, when we got up to the barn, which is on a hill, um, there were, you know, our acetylene um, welder was exploding, and it was just, you know, way too crazy to even figure out what, what had gone on. And the whole thing ended up burning down with a... You know, not luckily, a lot of our equipment was outside, but definitely um, some useful farm equipment and some of my family heirlooms as well were were in it. Um, so that was it was definitely a setback. Um, and then we, of course, had such a rainy season; we had uh, kind of no shelter. Um, but um, we really luckily were um, were able to put up a, a more modest but still um, pretty, you know, nice barn this past spring. And, um, you know, once you start, once you've really um, done it with, with nothing, it's, it's really nice to start getting some of the tools and infrastructure that you need to, to, do, um, to do what you want to do. tools and structures for new farms. And did you have to get a loan or did you um did you manage well, to I find mean, investors had, there or what there was, was some, your some insurance the financial that implications um, of that? And um yeah we, we have um had to take out some loans but we um another big thing for the farm is that we've um uh gone into the process of selling our development rights. Um and that's um, you know, the, the state uh, will purchase the development rights for farms. And they've now, with the state budget problems, they've raided that fund, and, and the projects that have already been cleared are waiting, you know, five-plus years to get to have that funding come through. And we haven't gotten the funding, but with that pledge as collateral, we've been able to, um, to receive some bridge loans to help us, uh, you know, Jumpstart us. So you're just waiting on state money coming through. And I've heard, I spoke, spoke with the American Farmland Trust lady, and she said that there are something like $20 million worth of projects that are waiting yeah, um, yeah. And, um, for, for the budget to be allocated. Is that, is that square with what you've heard? Yeah, I mean, that, sounds, that sounds right, yes. But I think it's $20 million in, un, in pledged but not yet funded projects. Um, and yeah, we have there are farms that um, you know won that grant uh, purchase development rights years before us that still haven't received their um, their money. So if Vilsack is listening or any of his staffers and he's interested to support beginning farmers, one critical way for that support to be made manifest is to allocate either federal money or urge states to put the money into the easement bank account such that the easement bank account can pay out to the farmers who are doing the right thing and preserving their land for agriculture. Absolutely. Uh, now, what what time remains with us? Oh, not very much. We have about three minutes. 
Josh, is there something that's coming up farm event-wise or, or work party-wise or training-wise that you um, want to make sure that everybody knows about? Um, no, we're pretty slow, you know, um, this winter. I mean, we um, we actually had enough um, storage crops and uh, and other things that were either coming out of the field or the greenhouse that we um, we did a, a winter CSA share this year. And that's one thing I didn't talk about before, but... You know, we um, when I was talking about how our we started out with too many markets, um, we were doing pick your own and farmers markets and some wholesale, and um, then recently this year we started a CSA, which um, sort of goes against my rule of simplifying and focusing on what you can be good at because it was a whole other marketing venture. But um, it's been really exciting, and in some ways, I I kind of see the whole farm going um, in that direction, um, and maybe some hybrid of a pick-your-own operation and a, a CSA. But um, So we're, we're just running our winter CSA, and, and pretty soon we're going to be opening um, for next season CSA. Um, and that, I mean, right now we're not delivering off the farm. It's, it's really for local customers. Um, you know, people living near enough to East Fishkill, so Westchester, Lower Hudson Valley. But um, but you're seeing you know, the potential of the marketplace, which is right at your doorstep. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Plus, you know, th- then you know, the thing about Pick Your Own that's, that's awesome is that you have all these people that you've never seen before come to your farm and, you know, spending money, but that's also the thing about it that's kind of, crazy is you have a ton of people who you know nothing about, um, a lot of whom are, are just intent on stealing produce. So um, the CSA is a really good way to, to know who your customers are and uh, connect with them. And, of course, you know, if there's a rainy weekend, they'll, they'll still show up, whereas a lot of your, you know, fair weather customers won't. Yeah, commitment and reciprocity. These are the these are the values of the agrarian the agrarian culture, which are very different from kind of um, the convenience culture, which we've all become accustomed to in this society. But of course, which is deeply incompatible with farming. Yeah, it is. And the cool thing about CSA members is that the CSA really asks a, a commitment, and I think that's kind of a value that's so. Um, is missing from so many people's lives that the people that are doing it just feel such a sense of pride and ownership and, um, and you know, commitment, um, which is just a, a unique thing. And, and, of course, it's been found and shown and proven and, and documented that CSA customers are getting the best deal on produce. So, that you know, that commitment goes a long way in terms of, you know, um, what you get for what you give. So I, I, I'm, I'm applauding all your very philosophical thinking about the marketplace and what kind of farm you, organism you want to be running. Um, in our remaining minute, I do want to make mention of some upcoming things from Greenhorn's side of the world. Um, as I mentioned, we had the NOFA New York Mixer last weekend. Um, this coming weekend is PASA, um, Pennsylvania. Association um, for Sustainable Ag Education, 
Um, we're also doing a sneak screening of the film at Eco Farm, which is in California. I'm in California right now, about to go to that conference. Um, and there are just, it's just going off right now. I mean, we are doing events um, all over the place, showing mixers, doing, I mean, showing the film and doing mixers. And uh, I really urge you guys to go on the website and look at the, the schedule of events, um, particularly for April. Um, when I think we're in like 12 states in April. So lots going on, and thank you, Josh. Thank you, thank listeners. Thank you so much for having and, me. And Happy New Year. Thank you. Oops.